you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to Acts, the book of Acts. We're in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and the title of this morning's sermon is Servant Leadership. Servant Leadership, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and uh, we're going to be encouraged this morning, I hope, as we learn a little bit about the organization of the church and one of the offices that began in the church, the office of deacon. The office of deacon, we'll see that here, the beginning of that here in Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Luke writes this. He says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the wisdom Uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they had said, uh, and what they said, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These men They set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and we're praying for wisdom and for insight as we reflect on the gospel that we just sang about, as we look at the early church and see the example of how they served you and counted it worthy to suffer for the sake of your name. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave the apostles as you directed them to appoint these seven men who would serve tables. And as we examine this text this morning, I pray that there would be lots of encouraging reminders of how we could all grow in serving one another, loving one another, and how we could delegate uh, opportunities to each other so that we could build up the body and how we could allow our elder team to continue to focus mainly on praying and preaching the word. And so God help us this morning as we look at all these things and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as the title of the sermon says, servant leadership, that's what I wanna talk to you a little bit about this morning, servant leadership. And let's do that first by, I thought I would compare servant leadership to the traditional leadership as seen in the secular world. Maybe if you work for a company, you've heard a little bit about leadership and seminars on leadership. And about 10 or 20 years ago, there started to be a lot more emphasis, even in the corporate world, on servant leadership. Servant leadership and traditional leadership Um, They employ different techniques and and have uh, vastly different outcomes. With a traditional leadership approach, the leader encourages people to do their jobs by providing them with guidance and direction and motivation. And the main focus of a traditional leader is to improve the business position of the company or the organization in the market. Servant leadership on the other hand, occurs when the leader's main goal and responsibility is to provide service to their people. A servant leader focuses on people that are directly below them, 
rather than on the company as a whole. In servant leadership, the leader ensures that the followers are growing in all areas, their profession, knowledge, autonomy, and even their health and their physical development. Many believe that when leaders shift their focus from the company to the employees, that they are more likely to produce skilled, talented, knowledgeable, and motivated employees, which in return will help improve the overall operations and the management of the organization. This leadership style has gained immense popularity in the world and has been adopted by various top-ranking companies. One of the most prominent examples of such a business model is that with Google. Google proud, uh, proudly um, thinks of themselves as providing good uh, uh, employee-friendly benefits for all of their workers. Starbucks is another company that boasts of the opportunity to help you earn your education and put you through school if you just work for Starbucks. And so different companies have employed this idea of servant leadership. So my question to you this morning is, how do secular companies train their people to be servant leaders? Well, one company says that anyone can become a servant leader by demonstrating certain characteristics, and then they list 10 characteristics of a servant leader. Number one, be a good listener. Number two, have empathy. Number three, heal those around you. Number four, be aware. Number five, persuade without being forceful. Number six, conceptualize and communicate a vision. Number seven, channel foresight. Number eight, practice stewardship. Number nine, commit. And number 10, build a community. Well, doesn't that all sound nice? (laughs) And if you're listening carefully, it's pretty vague. It's like political talk. It's like, hey, be nice to each other and build community and have a conviction and live it by your conviction, but it doesn't say what your conviction is or exactly how to do it. And I'm just saying this, despite their best attempt, this list utterly falls short, falls short because it has nothing to do with the true servant leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with the gospel. And despite some similarities, Christian servant leadership looks completely different than secular servant leadership. And as Christians, servant leadership is defined through Jesus's life and work. And it starts with God, not with people. Ken Blanchard and Phil Hodges write in their book entitled Lead Like Jesus, Servant leadership is a concrete expression of a daily commitment to live out the word of God and the will of God and therefore advance the kingdom of God. They go on to talk in that book about how you've got to preach the gospel. You've got to love Christ. You have to be transformed. You have to be born again in order to be a servant leader that truly honors God. And it's only out of this foundation and this purpose that leaders are truly serving others. And this is the kind of leadership that we see in God's word. We see Jesus uh, being the ultimate servant leader. We see Christian servant leadership being on display in how he trained his apostles. I mean, if you remember at one point of Christ's ministry, he taught the disciple about his coming betrayal and death, and they did not understand the meaning of what he was saying, and instead they were actually arguing about who would be the greatest leader in the absence of Jesus. But Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them in Mark 10, 42 to 45, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
So he's talking about the traditional leadership model. He's like, the Gentiles, they lord it over. They assert themselves as being in charge, but it shall not be so among you. So Jesus is saying to his leaders, I don't want you to be like that. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave or the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's servant leadership. Giving your life giving up your life for the cause of Christ and for the gospel's sake. And Jesus demonstrated this in both the gospel and the rest of his life. In John 6, he served 5,000 by feeding them bread and fish. In John 13, he served the disciples by washing their feet. In John 19, Jesus served all of us by offering up his body to be crucified. And now, here in the book of Acts, we see the members of the church learning this same servant leadership. The apostles learned to be servant leaders, and we've seen them do that time and time again as we've been studying through Acts in 2, 44 and 45, and all who believed were, in, uh, were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need. The apostles helped direct that member care. Again, in Acts 4, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was uh, sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now at this point in Acts, as the church is growing in the advancement of the early church, it's time for the apostles to now pass along some of their duties of service to other men. They were literally doing everything every day and they needed help and some additional assistance to be able to adequately tend to the needs of this growing body of believers. The apostles were fearless in speaking in the name of Jesus at any cost. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, but the apostles were also mindful that there were many Christians who needed more than just preaching and teaching. There were Christians who also needed tender care for the flock that they were a part of. And oftentimes that tender care was to be put into practice by meeting some of the physical needs of the people. And so in Acts chapter six, the church faced its first serious organizational crisis. And to eliminate a potentially divisive problem, it required a new approach and that of delegating responsibilities. And so in verses one through seven, there are four observations that I want to point out that we need to watch and see how the disciples truly did carry out a servant leadership mentality. And these four observations will be the beginning of the office of deacon, verses one through three, the responsibility of the apostles, verse four, the organization of the church, verses five through six, and then you see there the fourth point, the resulting growth of the church in verse seven. So let's start with number one. Again, four observations about how we can better understand servant leadership, both from the apostle standpoint as well as from the deacon's standpoint. So let's talk about number one, the beginning of the office of deacon. And that first blank, if you are taking notes, says growing pains can lead to unintentional neglect. 
Growing pains can lead to unintentional neglect. It says in verse one, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In these days, the church was growing. We were told in Acts 2 that 3,000 were added to the church. In Acts chapter 4, 5,000 were added to the church. In Acts chapter 5, we were told that more believers than ever were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Some estimate that this early church at this time in history was somewhere between 20 to 30,000 believers all there in Jerusalem. And so here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we're told that the church is continuing as well to increase in number. And like any church that grows quickly to that size, they are bound to experience growing pains. You can't pastor a 500-member church in the same way that you would pastor a 5,000-member church. As the church grows, you have to approach the ministry differently. You have to make adjustments and help develop leaders along the way. And as tends to happen, as the church grew, some things got overlooked. One significant complaint that came in was this complaint here in verse one, where it says that the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, here is a incredible opportunity for Satan to step in and to destroy the church. He's gonna have people bickering and devouring one another if they're not careful. And this is an issue that Satan could have used to split this church. He had already attempted to attack the church by implementing persecution. But that had just caused the church to grow stronger. Satan had tried to attack the church by introducing sin into the body with Ananias and Sapphira. But that attempt also miserably failed. The purified church was only growing faster and stronger through these attacks of the evil one. And so having failed to stop the church through persecution and having failed to stop the church through corruption, Satan tried a third tactic. He sought to create dissension within the church. And Jesus had said in Mark 3.25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So here we have a potential division in the early church. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. They had been influenced through the diaspora, as many of them had been dispersed throughout the Middle East, and they had learned uh, Greek as their new native language. Some of these Hellenists uh, may not have even spoken Hebrew because they weren't even Hebrew. They were actually Greeks as well. So the Hellenists would be Greeks or those that maybe had some type of Jewish background, but they were also very, very influenced by the Greco-Roman world. Uh, many of these Hellenists would have have been using the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translation into Greek. Uh, they, they may not have been able to, uh, again, speak or understand Hebrew in the same way that the Hebrews did. And so while they were remaining loyal to God, they had absorbed some of the Greek culture that surrounded them. Now, the Hebrews, on the other hand, were the Palestinian Jews who were born and raised in Jerusalem or in that area, and they spoke Hebrew quite well, and they held more closely to their Jewish culture. According to the Talmud, many of the Hebrews considered Hellenists to be second-class Israelites. 
They were like, hey, you guys have been dispersed. You don't even live here. Some of you are proselytes who've been converted to Judaism and now maybe into Christianity. And so there was becoming some tension. In fact, this cultural hostility between these two groups is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, when Paul writes about Jesus, that he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so that passage in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 talks about, look, we got two groups, but we're now one in Christ. We have a new man called the church where there's no longer should be emphasis on your Gentile or Jewish background because now we're one in Christ. And so many of these Hellenists had been in Jerusalem here in the beginning of Acts. They had been there for the Passover. They had been there for Pentecost. They had even been converted by the preaching of the gospel and decided to stay there and to grow under the teaching of the apostles. Others may have simply been older people who have returned to Israel to live out the remainder of their lives. And these Hellenists were in a minority in the church, which may explain why their needs were overlooked. And this became an issue in the church, so much so that it was brought before the attention of the apostles. I mean, caring for widows was part of the Jewish culture. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so we understand throughout the Old Testament, there's a special love that God has for orphans and for widows and the downcast and the downtrodden. There's a special way that God had commanded his people to take care of those that were less fortunate. Paul taught later about taking care of widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. And it goes on there in 1 Timothy 5 to talk about the qualification for those who would receive care. They had to be of a certain character and of a certain age and that they would take extra care to make sure that those widows were cared for. And so Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, again, the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so there was this daily distribution, this daily rationing of food being provided, and somehow in the growth of the church, in the differences in the culture, in the unfamiliarity, even with all the new people, the Hellenist widows were being overlooked. And so this issue, again, it could have easily split the church There could have been complete disunity. This could have led to arguing, strife, and irreparable conflict. But as with any trial, there also comes an opportunity for growth and for resolution. And so your next blank says, growing pains can lead to new opportunities. Here's a a moment in time where there can be an opportunity to respond in a God-honoring way. And so here's the opportunity to begin a new office of the church. Your next blank says the origin of the deacon office. And so we see here what happens is, and the 12 summoned, verse 2, the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, um, among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will appoint to this duty. And so verse 2 is talking about the 12. That would be a reference to the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. It was the 12. Remember, that's minus Judas Iscariot. 
plus Matthias, who had been added, so that's the 12 that we're talking about, and they summoned all of the believers, they gathered the congregation, and here was the first church membership meeting. They needed to all get together and hash this one out, talk it out a little bit, troubleshoot how they can solve this problem. And so they gathered everybody together. The apostles, please note, they didn't ignore the problem. They attacked the problem. The apostles did not turn a deaf ear, but they opened their hearts. They didn't ignore the complaint. They listened, and then they did something about it. The apostles said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles recognized that we need to prioritize preaching and the gospel, but at the same time, these practical needs must be addressed. Now, as they um, thought through how to solve the problem, verse three, again, gives us the solution. They said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This passage gives us the origin of the office of deacon in the church. Just be aware, as I say that carefully, I'm saying it because some commentaries would say that these seven men were not deacons. This is not the office of deacon. This is just a simple appointment of certain men to serve. I'm saying to you, because of the language that's used here, that this is a prototype and that this is the beginning of the church of deacon, and it's almost impossible to divorce any concept you have of deacons from Acts chapter six. And so while the office of deacon maybe not was completely developed and formed at a mature level at this point, this is certainly the beginning idea, so we're saying this is the origin of the office of deacon as we're seeing it develop here practically. Now I told you the language, while the word deacon is not used in these seven verses, the word for deacon in the original language is the word diakonos, it's used 29 times in the New Testament, and the word literally means a servant or a minister. So that's what a deacon is. A deacon is a servant or a minister. A deacon is a servant or a minister. So Jesus uses the word, um, this word diakonos, to describe the person who is serving in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. You must be your servant, your diakonos. And so here in verse, uh, in, in Acts chapter six, again, this prototype, prototype of the office of deacon at the end of verse one, it uses the word for diakonos in the daily distribution. That word of the daily distribution in the original language is the word diakonia, which is the word service at the end of verse two. When it says to serve tables, it's the word diakonio, which is the verb form of serving. And so I do believe that this passage here in Acts 6 is truly the origin of the office of deacon. And let's look how, now your next blank says, the qualifications of a deacon, the qualifications of a, of a deacon. Here in Acts 6, there are three qualifications for this type of servant, and they're all found there in verse 3. What does it say? Well, first of all, the verse says that the servants are to be men. That's what it says in verse three. He says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. This is a third-person masculine term. It doesn't say pick out seven people. It doesn't say pick out seven men and women. It says pick out seven men. The male gender is not superior to the female gender. Right? Men and women are created equal before God in their value and in their dignity but we have distinct and different roles and responsibilities at home 
and in the church. And so at this point in time, he just simply says, pick out seven men. That's the first qualification. The second qualification would be that these are to be men, what kind of men? Men of good repute, verse three says, of good repute. This means that they are men of good reputation. The word means that they confirm the truth as a witness and that they live it out in front of others. And so these men are gonna be solid in their character. There's gonna be no question about where they stand, both in their understanding of the gospel and how they live that out. And then the third qualification given here in verse three is that they're to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. This is obviously a, a reference to the fact that they've been born again. They've been born again and now they're spirit filled. As Ephesians 5.18 says, they're to be controlled by the spirit. To be filled by the spirit is to be controlled by the spirit. So these men are not only born again, but they're walking in the spirit every day in their normal lives. In other words, they are to function as mature Christians who are serving in the Spirit's power and not on their own. They, they're to be full of wisdom, the verse says. That word Sophia, it, it means to, the, the capacity to understand and to function accordingly. So in other words, they weren't just to have the knowledge up here, they would be able to flesh it out, to put it into practice, to know how to, how to share that, that knowledge and to wisely approach situations such as the one they're in in a way that would be fair, in a way that would be generous, in a way that would be gracious. And so this would be putting knowledge into practice. That word Sophia is used in Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now those are the three qualifications that we see here in Acts chapter six. Now there are more qualifications given for a deacon, so I want you to turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter three. Because by the time we get to 1 Timothy chapter three, the office of deacon has now been um, maturing into a full-blown office of those who would serve in the church. And so in addition to these qualifications that we've seen of being a man, being of good repute, and being full of the spirit and of wisdom, the qualifications of the deacon are given in 1 Timothy chapter three, verses eight through 13, and it's a whole list. And so we won't have time to expound on each one, but certainly you'll see here a more in-depth list. 1 Timothy chapter three, by the way, verses one through seven give the qualifications of an elder. So the qualifications of an elder, the first office, if you will, of those who are involved in church leadership has just been described. And then in verse eight, he turns from the word elder or presbyteros to the word deacon, diakonos. And he says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The only real difference that exists in these qualifications for a deacon versus the qualifications of an elder in verses one through seven is that the office of an elder also has to be able to teach. Doesn't say that for the office of deacon. So the one different um, 
prerequisite of being an elder, he's got to be able to teach, which means he's gifted in teaching, that maybe he's mastered a little bit more, a study of the word of God, that he's able to give counsel and proclaim God's truth with a little bit more fortitude. But as far as the character qualifications of a deacon and the character qualifications of an elder, they're essentially the same. An elder, in addition to being able to, to uh, preach the word and able to teach, he's also going to be a shepherd of souls, the word poimain, leading to the idea of being a shepherd. And we see that in First Peter chapter 5, that, he's, that Peter was to shepherd the flock of God. Uh, an elder is also to oversee all the affairs of the church, not just to wait on tables, but to oversee everything that's going on. And so the function of an elder and the function of a deacon are described here in First Timothy chapter 3. The function of a deacon tends to lend itself more towards practical matters. And we see that here in chapter 6 of Acts. And in fact, your next blank says the function of a deacon. The function of a deacon in Acts 6, these early deacons were to serve tables. That's what they were to do. They were to help with the daily distribution of the food. They were to help feed people as well as take care of their practical needs. Here at Placerito Bible Church, we have our deacons serving at the direction of the elder team, and oftentimes they are involved in the practical work um, that is needed to be done around here. For example, our deacons are, are very involved in our facilities, while the elders are helping oversee the financial uh, decisions that are made of stewardship, the deacons oftentimes help out with various uh, aspects of the facilities, various aspects of benevolence. When someone is needing uh, care and love in a monetary way from the church, we have a committee that's made up of deacons. We have an elder who oversees that, and they would sit down with and try to help provide loving care in a practical way with that individual or that family. Deacons help out with the finances. While the elders are kind of in charge of d dispersing those funds and setting the budget, there's deacons who help count the money, who help process the money, who help, um, you know, help with the, just the, all the logistics that go around financing. We have deacons who are involved in ushering, helping people when they come on a Sunday to, to welcome people to our church, to move people in and out of this room. Uh, all kinds of logistics for various ministries. We have a security team that's made up of deacons or deacon-like um, people at our church who serve faithfully to help oversee and help us uh, make sure that we're safe on any given Sunday. And so those, those are what deacons tend to, a function of a deacon tends to work more towards those practical logistics. Now, one more thing I want to say before we move on uh, in this passage would be the gender. So verse uh, number four in your outline says the gender of a deacon or deaconess. So obviously the question always comes up, well, should deacons only be men or should deacons be men and women? What does the scripture say about that? You kind of shortchanged this Tyson on your First Timothy 3 passage when it talked about the wives and their qualifications. So you can't sneak that past us without talking about it a little bit more. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it for just a moment, shall we? So in the First Timothy 3 passage, if you're there, we're talking again about the support of, of, of deaconesses being women. Let's just take that position. These are two positions we'll just describe shortly. I, I didn't want to spend all my time on this, but I just couldn't help it because I know you're going to ask me after the sermon, well, what about women? Can women be deacons? So here we go. You ready? All right. So in support of deaconesses as women, we could say your next blank says Phoebe is referred to as a deaconess in Romans 16. We're going to come back to 1 Timothy, but go ahead and go to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. This is an important argument in support of deaconesses being part of the office of deacon in a local church. Phoebe is referred to as a deaconess. Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
And if you have an ESV version, or if you have a NASB version, it's going to say, a servant of the church at Sencrae. So notice it says Phoebe is a servant, but if you look at the word in the original, it's the word deaconess. It's, it's diaconess in the feminine form, and so it is properly translated by the NIV and the New Living Translation. By the way, that's the only two translations I could find, the NIV and the NLT, that actually translate the word as deaconess, as the rest of the translations uh, translate this word, diaconess, as servant. Not as deaconess, but as servant. But nevertheless, one argument that um, deaconesses uh, exist in the Bible would be like, well, Phoebe. Uh, Romans chapter 16, it lists her as a deaconess. A second argument for deaconesses being women would be number two, the qualifications of deaconesses are given in that passage in 1 Timothy 3.11. So turn back to 1 Timothy 3.11. Maybe you're already there. It says their wives. So remember we're talking in verse 8, 9, 10 about deacons, what their qualifications are to be, the kind of character that they're to have. And then it says in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so Paul takes the time to give a whole verse and four qualifications of what the wife of a deacon should be like, and it's assumed by those who would take this position of deaconesses that that's the qualifications of a deaconess, that this is the characteristics that she should have. Number three, a third argument would be there seems to be a servant-oriented, um, there seems to be servant-oriented women who are possibly deaconesses in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, and in Titus 2. I'll just read from the passage from Titus 2 because there's some, there's some words here that make us think, well, if anybody was deaconess, even though we don't have a list of them in the Bible except for the possibility of Phoebe, if anyone else was a deaconess, maybe this would be addressed in Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, where it says, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so those who would fight for the office of deaconess would be like, well, maybe this is an example of how there were deaconesses who lived up to those qualifications and who were serving in some type of women's ministry or some type of, of, of uh, opportunity to use their gifts and abilities as a deaconess. Well, those are decent arguments that I would be okay with someone making to say, I think that the church should have deaconesses. If those are the arguments they gave, I'd be like, hey, that's a fair argument. On the other hand, um, let me give you some support of why I believe personally, and our church takes the stance of that deacons are men, not women. So if you're wondering why we take that position, here's why we take that position of deacons being an office for men, not men and women. B, in the outline there, says in support of deacons being men, not women, number one, Phoebe is a servant of the church, not a deaconess. So what I would say is that that is a passage that doesn't teach about the office of ecclesiology 
of elder and deacon. When you get to Romans 16, Paul is simply saying farewell to a bunch of different people. And if you read through Romans chapter 16, he lists a boatload of different names of people that we've never even heard of before, but he says nice things about them and greets them. So because it's in the part of scripture of where there's some salutations given at the book, end of the book of Romans, and it's not clear teaching like 1 Timothy is on what a deacon should be, what an elder should be, I would say that it would be um, better translated as servant as the ESV version does in the NASB version. And for us not to just assume that that Phoebe definitely is um, a, a clear um, office of deaconess. I told you earlier that the word diakonos is used to describe a person as a servant 29 times in the New Testament. Well, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it's the only feminine form. In the whole Bible, there's only one feminine form, and it's there in Romans 16, and I think it's just talking about our sweet sister Phoebe, that she's an incredible servant. She's a great lady, but I don't think that it's enough to say, since it's not used at all in any other passage in the New Testament, enough to tip the scales over on the flip side, at least for me. A second argument I would give would be, number two, the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3.11. If you'll notice, 1 Timothy 3.11, are for a deacon's wife, not for a deaconess. It doesn't use the word deaconess in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says their wives. The word for wives is the word gune, not diakonos. So because of that argument, I would say that he's simply saying, hey, look, if you're going to be a deacon, your wife needs to be shipshape in her character as well. We can't have you serving in the office of an overseer if your wife is, is somebody who's not dignified, if she's slanderous, if she's not sober-minded, if she's not being faithful, then you need to basically work on your marriage. You need marriage counseling. That's what you need. You need to learn how to live with your wife in an understanding way, and you guys work through some of those issues. And so I would say that the First Timothy 3.11 is not about deaconesses. It's simply saying that in order for a deacon to serve, that his wife should also be a godly woman. I would also say it's a little bit strange that he doesn't address the wife of an elder in the same way. You know, we have elders, but nobody really makes the case for elderesses. And it's interesting that you have deacons, but now all of a sudden the case is made for deaconesses, where again, the word deaconess isn't used here in 1 Timothy chapter 8, verse 11. So it's just interesting that someone would use that as an argument to say, well, there is the office of deaconess based on that one verse. I would be like, well, that one verse is talking about the wife of a deacon. That's what the verse is talking about. Number three, there are many servants in the Bible, but not all are officers in the church. And so again, the word diakonos, 29 times, the other 28 times, it's referring to various people who are servants in the first uh, Timothy 5, 3 through 16 and Titus 2, 3 through 5 are glorious passages about women serving, but there's no clear, specific, or technical language used describing these women as deaconesses. Number four, the first seven deacons appointed in the early church were all men. So I made that argument already that in order to actually be a deacon, my argument would be is that you've got to be a man as the first qualification given in the Acts chapter six passage. And if you look at verses five through six, when they name all of the deacons, they are all men. They're all men that are given. And so those would be the arguments that I would give. I would just simply say, hey, this isn't a hill to die on. The main thing really, in my opinion, is that you understand biblical complementarianism versus, uh, versus a liberal view of what's called egalitarianism. And so an egalitarian would say that men and women are equal and also interchangeable in their roles, both in marriage and in the church. And so an egalitarian would say, 
the woman is just as much the head of the house as the man is, and that a woman could also serve as a pastor or an elder. So we don't take that view. Um, not everyone who adopts the deaconess view would accept that egalitarian view. So if you do take the deaconess rule, uh, deaconess uh, view, excuse me, then at least I pray that you're a complementarian that would say, hey, just because I believe in deaconesses doesn't mean I believe that, that a husband shouldn't be the head of the house and that pastors and elders can also be women. I just think that there's a place for that in the Bible to be a deaconess. If that's where you're at, I'm saying that's the main issue here, complementarianism, not so much whether or not you have deacons or deaconesses. All right, I may have gone too long to explain all that, but I hope it's at least helpful for you to know why we as a church hold to the doctrinal statement that we hold to, hold to the position that we hold to, and guess what? It's okay if you have a different view. If you're just like, well, I still think you should have deaconesses, and I think the biblical arguments for deaconesses outweigh your arguments, that's fine. You can hold that position. But at our church, we don't hold to that. It's an elder team. It's in our doctrinal statement. That's why it's there, so that we can at least have uh, an understanding and a biblical uh, unity, hopefully, of where we stand and why. Fair enough? All right, let's move on in our Acts 6 passage. Now that we've seen the origin of the office of deacon, let's look at number two, the responsibility of the apostles. The responsibility of the apostles, we see there in verse four, the whole point of setting this up is so that the apostles could say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles were to be devoting themselves, your next blank, to prayer. The apostles had a responsibility. They were to be building up the church of the living God. They were to be uh, serving the church through preaching and through praying. And the way to build the church, the way that they would do this was by giving themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And please note there in verse four, the order here is significant. First, prayer, then the ministry of the word. They made it a point to speak to God about men before speaking to men about God. They prayed before they preached. They prepared their hearts before they prepared their sermons. They pursued the heart of God before they attempted to persuade the hearts of men. It all starts with prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians 1.3-5, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So if there is no prayer, there is no power. The apostles couldn't do it on their own strength. They must depend on prayer. And so they wanted to have the deacons, if you will, be ready to serve people with the practical needs that they could spend more time in prayer. And then also, the next part of verse 4 says they wanted to devote themselves to the ministry of the word. So they're to pray and to preach. Not only the apostles need time to focus on prayer, they needed to be focused on ministering the word of God. They needed to be focused on studying the word of God. They needed time to digest the word of God. They needed time to teach and preach the word of God. They would let nothing, no matter how pressing, distract them from this awesome responsibility. They're saying, in effect, we're gonna set up this office of deacon so that you can serve tables, so that we as an elder team, we can be faithful to serve the word. 
You serve tables, we serve the word. It's not that one's better than the other, but there is a significance on the emphasis of the preaching of the word of God. And I would say that many pastors today are too involved in the social gospel to be faithfully preparing to preach the saving gospel. Now, I love a pastor who wants to get involved in helping people. And every pastor and elder should have that heart. But at the same time, if a pastor is spending all of his time helping the people in his congregation and in his community, and he's not doing his primary, primary, primary calling of preaching the word faithfully and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, then he's got his priorities out of whack. And so I'm saying we're not to focus so much on the social gospel as we are to be preaching a saving gospel. And the apostles wanted to make sure that the needs were being met, but they also knew that the greatest need was for the word of God to be preached. And the apostles pledged to devote themselves to the ministry as they set the pattern for all pastors and elders to follow. The ministry of the word demands total commitment. Everything that a man has to give. There there is no substitute for the hard work and the daily discipline of a pastor preparing a sermon. A young man once said to the gifted expository preacher of God's word by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, this young man said to him, quote, I would give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you do. Looking at him and straight into his eyes, Dr. Barnhouse replied to this young man, he said, good, because it's exactly what it will cost you. The young man said, hey, I'll give, I'll give everything to do that. And he said, that's what it's going to cost you. You have to give everything in order to do that well. The apostle Paul uh, models this level of commitment to the word and the ministry it demands. His, his farewell message to the Ephesian elders in uh, Acts 20, 18 through 21 says this. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trust that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, in that exchange between him and the Ephesian elders, he's like, hey man, I did my best to be faithful. I was with you through the trials and what happened, but I continued to preach the word. I did it in private. I did it in public. That's my ministry. That's what God's called me to do. Paul had focused not on entertaining the crowd. Paul did not focus on tickling ears and saying nice things that people just wanted to hear. Paul did not try to be popular. Paul simply preached the gospel and he taught the word in public and from house to house. Paul preached a message of repentance and he taught people why and how to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best preaching is the preaching that comes from the Bible that's based on the truths of scripture and it aims at making an eternal impact on your soul. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so you and I need to always be ready to preach the word. This, This requires rebuking sin when needed. It requires correcting the fallen. 
It requires building up and encouraging others to look to Christ. And this is all to be urgent. But at the same time, we are to be patient and we are to watch the word of God have its effect. We are to, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what the apostles did. This is the same work that we're talking about here in Acts 6.4. The apostles are like, hey, we're not letting go of that. We are not going to stop doing that. That is our primary calling. And that's the primary calling of any pastor and any elder today. My job is to pray and to preach. My job is to spend time on my knees and to spend time preparing to bring you the word week after week. I have to be careful that my own time doesn't get so caught up in other practical things that I'm uh, divorcing myself from my primary calling, which is to pray and to preach. And so I just want to say thank you to our church. Thank you for understanding that that's my primary responsibility. Thank you to our deacon team who does an incredible job where I or any of our elders can pick up the phone at any time and say, hey, well, here's, a, here's a logistical issue we need you guys to think about, to resolve, to work on, because we want to make sure that we're spending time on our knees and preparing to lead in the teaching of the church. And so that's what what I'm trying to do, thank you, and keep praying for me as I try to do it well, all right? And that's why there's move to number three, the organization of the church, verses five through six. Uh, here we see, I'm gonna give you this next blank that says the church was unified. The church was unified. Again, we're looking at the organization now clearly spelled out, and, when, uh, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. I want to just point that out. That's, that's what I mean by, they, by saying the church was unified. When the apostles came up with a plan to fix the problem, everybody liked the plan. They came up with a plan that was reasonable, that was thoughtful. The apostles heard about the problem and they addressed the problem. They didn't, again, turn the deaf ear to the concerns of the congregation. They didn't just say, well, we're supposed to pray and preach, so you figure it out on your own. Instead, they had already said in verse 3, pick out from among you seven men. And please note, uh, here in Acts 6, there is no voting. There's no voting that happens here. They simply say, hey, look, we want you to, in a sense, nominate, suggest, pick out, pass on the names of these men, and then we will appoint them. And it's assumed, I admit, it's assumed that before they would appoint them, they would evaluate to see whether or not these men that had been brought to the surface, whether that was brought to the surface by the elder team themselves or by members of the church, have you ever considered so-and-so as a possible deacon to serve at our church? That's all um, welcomed here at our church. While we don't have an open time of nomination where we you know, pass out ballots and let you just have an open time, we, we just kind of do it uh, as uh, by, by ear. You know, it's kind of like at any time people come up to us and say, hey, I really have noticed that so-and-so is just really serving in a phenomenal way. Have you ever considered that person as a deacon? And sometimes we say, hey, you know what? We have, and that person's on our short list. In fact, we're thinking about, uh, you know, communicating something similar to that here in the next go around. We typically add deacons to our church about once a year as we think through who that individual is. And then obviously we, we sit them down, we talk with them, we interview them, and we interview their wives so that the wives match up to 1 Timothy 3.11. We're like, all right, wife, are you ready? Because this, this is for your husband, but this is now for you. And then we just uh, try to make sure that we're doing our job um, vetting the different people that come out. But 
my point is, is that in verse five there, or the end of verse three, it says, whom we will appoint to this duty. So it wasn't necessarily, they didn't get into that office by popular vote. It was still something that was submitted to the elder team and the elder team would appoint as they deemed necessary and that, that made sense with their, with, their, with their responsibility to do that. And so this pleased, first part of verse five says, it pleased the whole gathering. This was an adequate way to address the problem. This, this was good leadership. This was sensitivity. This was engaging the whole body to help resolve the issue. It was a unifying work that we see here at the beginning of verse five. Your next blank says the deacons were all identified. And so we see them listed there in verse five. They chose Stephen. And so Stephen was the first man that was appointed. He had a pivotal role to play in the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem. He preached a clear gospel message that we'll look at in our next chapter of Acts chapter seven. He became the first martyr of the Christian church. He was truly a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The second person that they picked was Philip. We know Philip as the great evangelist. He took the gospel to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and he witnessed and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. He witnessed to him, and then he baptized him. And we also read in Acts 21 about how Philip had four daughters who were all referred to as prophetesses. So I'll have to address that when we get there in uh, chapter 21. All right. So these are the first two men. They were giants of the faith. Everybody who knows the New Testament knows about Stephen and they know about Philip. If you don't know about Stephen and Philip, then I would say, shame on you. Where have you been your whole life? These are studs. These guys preach and evangelize like nobody's business, which just goes on to say that the office of deacon is not second rate. The office of deacon is that somehow, while the qualification wasn't necessarily that they had to be able to teach, many of them were able to teach, as is modeled in Acts 7 and Acts 8. These are godly men. They did an incredible work, and the others, I'm assuming, are like them, though we don't know anything about the other five men, hardly anything at all. Um, there's Prochorus. Some early traditions of church history say that he may have been the amanuesis for John as he wrote his gospel. There's Nicholas, who was a Gentile convert um, to the faith from Antioch. Some of the church fathers also associated Nicholas with that heretical group uh, known as the Nicolaitans from Revelation 2, but that's not known for sure. Uh, what we do know is that all of these uh, seven men were qualified. They were notably, they were also notably Hellenists. Now remember, the problem came up between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So when the apostles say, hey, pick for us seven men, guess what? They pick seven Hellenists. All of these have Greek names, assuming that they're going to say, hey, you know what? If there's a problem and we've overlooked something, we want to make that right. And let's make that right, not necessarily by saying we're going to have six Hebrews and six, um, you know, Hellenists. They just said, hey, just pick the seven guys that you think can help take care of this need. Let's appoint them. And they picked seven Hellenists in order to be able to care for these needs. I would just say that's an act of love. That's an act of care. That's an act of being aware of the need and being willing to accommodate that need in a wholesome, godly way. Now, notice that they didn't just pick them because they were Hellenists. So in other words, you can't just say, oh, you guys are Hellenists, you're in, because we have to do something Hellenistic. You know, it was like, no, these guys are godly, above repute, they have the godly character, but they're also Hellenists, and they might understand and know, speak the language and the culture of the widows who've been overlooked. Let's have them serve. This is a beautiful picture of church unity. It's a beautiful picture of how the early church resolved the issue. And then we see, your next blank says, the apostles' affirmation. 
the apostles' affirmation. Again, they laid their hands on them. It says in verse six, they, um, they sat before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Uh, the, church was in, uh, the whole church was involved in selecting the seven. They were commissioned by the apostles. The laying on of hands was a way to show authority, to show commissioning, uh, a way to show a gesture signifying that this was approved, elder approved. There's a lot of uh, references given there about the laying on of hands. And so that's what they did with these deacons. And then they began to serve in that way. And then number four, what were the, resu- the results of this organization of the church? Number four uh, says the resulting growth of the church. Your next blank says the influence of God's word increased. Look at verse seven, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. And so as they got their organization right, the elders were able to hum along at doing what they did best, pray and preach. The deacons were able to hum along at what they were called to do, which was serve to practical needs. And as things were being organized, unity was being uh, sought after, then God's word just continued to have its impact. It was the word of God that was the catalyst for growth. It wasn't a skit. It wasn't a song. It wasn't a celebrity. It was the word of God. The scriptures are breathed out by God and the Bible is inerrant. The word of God is infallible and sufficient and life-changing and soul-cleansing and forever impacting the souls of men. It was the word of God that brought about the increase because the word of God was placed in its proper place and it was having its proper effect. And so we see there, the next blank says, the number of disciples multiplied. So the word of God increased, the number of disciples multiplied, the number of disciples, true and faithful believers uh, multiplied. That word means to grow, to increase greatly in number. Uh, The word of God increased and multiplied, Acts 12, 24, Acts 19, 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase increase and prevail mightily. And then I think it's kind of interesting at the end of verse seven, it says the priest became obedient to the faith. That's kind of what I've been looking for. We've been studying through Acts and we've talked a little bit about Gamaliel and we've talked about some of the other Sanhedrin, some of the other high priests. Uh, we've talked about all these officials. And now all of a sudden here in Acts 6 verse 7, it says there, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know what I think's going on here? I think the priests were watching And they were listening and they were waiting to see whether or not this new movement would fizzle out, like Gamaliel had said a little bit earlier, or it would continue. And when they saw how the Hebrew believers and how now the Hellenistic believers were still functioning together in a unified way, and they saw the gospel being preached, I think that it was a beautiful comparison to Judaism. And they began to look at the focus of their older Judaistic customs and cultures which were good and right for a season, but we're out of the old covenant. Remember, the new covenant has been ushered in and they see the beauty and the expanse of, of, of what's happening in the church. And I think many of them, they just got converted. They, they were converted because of the beauty of this servant leadership of how the, uh, the, the leaders led their people, served their people, came alongside them and wanted to make a difference. And I'm just saying that the organization of the church matters. And when the church is organized correctly and all the leaders of the church, whether you have an office, you you, you may be here this morning, you're like, oh my word, he keeps going on and about the office of elder and deacon. I'm neither one and I don't want to be either one. Well, guess what? 
We still are to follow these same characteristics. You're still called to serve. You're still called to pursue Christ. You're still called to serve others. You're still called whether you ever receive the office of deacon or deaconess, if we did have that. The point is we're all called to be faithful in our unity together and our service to one another and a unified, well-taught church will be a powerful witness to a lost world. And so we have an example of this here in Acts 6. I pray and hope that it's been an encouragement to you this morning. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we want to invite you this day to put your faith in him. We want to invite you, whether you have an opinion or not about ecclesiology or the offices of the church, that you would know that today Christ died for your sins and that Christ cares about his church and that Christ would invite you this very day to repent and to be baptized as a follower of him. And so if you're here this morning and you want to talk to somebody about where you stand in your faith, we have a few people that will be back in that back corner after our final song that would love to pray with you and talk with you about that. If you're here today and you're a member of our church or you're, you're a Christian already and you have just something on your heart, some way that we could uh, pray with you, please as well know that we're here to serve you and pray with you in any way that we can as we will do that after this last song. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into Acts 6. There's so much here that we could be encouraged by, so many things to look at and to, con- and to uh, just contemplate, um, so many um, ways that we as a church could say, you know what? I just love the way that these elders uh, devoted themselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. I love the way that these, these apostles and elders appointed these seven godly men who could take care of these widows who had their needs overlooked. Help us to examine the principles that we've studied this morning in a way that would say, how could we grow as a church? How could we do a better job listening How could we do a better job problem solving together? How could we do a better job as a leader team appointing and delegating responsibilities? How could members of our church step up and say, hey, look, I'm not looking for an office, but I do, I have noticed this and I have noticed that. I just want to see if there's any way I can help meet these needs because I need to be a part of help serve, helping to serve here in this local body. God, so just do that work in our midst. Do that work in our hearts. Help us again as an elder team to not neglect any body in any way and help us to be faithful in praying and in preaching. God, help us from what we've learned this morning to have healthy conversations, maybe even today around the dinner table or in small groups about how we can see and understand this passage and live out the principles that we see in a way that would show our love and our devotion to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.